This is Michelle McKenzie, and welcome to the WTF Podcast, where we demystify entrepreneurship and the fog around funding. To my next guest, beauty is culture, and she believes everyone, especially Black women, deserve to have an authentic representation of beauty. She is passionate about highlighting beauty as an intersection of culture and community, and she is the current president of the Black Beauty Club. Ezine Irania is the CEO of Skin Muse, a premium beauty brand championing inclusivity and sustainability in luxury. She comes with over a decade of experience working on brands like Lancome, Dior, and Dior. For her, beauty is culture and she believes everyone deserves it. And so she is here to talk about Skin Muse, why she got started. In this episode, we'll discuss her goal to show others how to use beauty as a means of financial empowerment, how her products got featured by top celebrities and magazines, her fundraising journey, including bootstrapping grants. And I think you recently um, got into a program with Andreessen Horowitz, and you can tell me about that later. Her top five fundraising strategies and five pieces of advice for Black female startup founders in the beauty industry about raising capital and growing a successful business. As an A. Welcome to the WTF Podcast. Michelle, that was an intro. I tell you that. I love that. I love just listening to that. You give me all my flowers. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. There you you go, my dear. (laughs) No, I'm happy to have you to talk about the intersection of beauty and culture. How does beauty intersect with culture and why did you start Skin Muse? What problem are you solving? Because we know the beauty industry is stacked. With beauty brands, it is. It what, is. What, what what other problem is still there less left to solve? Oh. Tell me about what you are solving in the beauty space. You know, like most companies, especially in the beauty space, we start them due to personal needs, and then you do your research, and then you find out you're not the only one experiencing it. My story: I was born and raised in Nigeria. My mother owned a beauty salon, so I I grew up around that. Every weekend, I would get my hair done by Auntie Bola. That was my, that was, she's my auntie by, by relationship. And once in a while, she would actually take us to these, create these beautiful experiences of rest. So my mom was a woman who showed me that through beauty, you're able to carve out moments of self-care and rest. And not because you have to earn it, but because you deserve it. So she was a woman who scheduled rest before she got burnt out. She was a woman who prioritized herself regardless of four kids. She's like, I'm going to get rest. And because she implemented us into her schedule for rest. So that's how I started learning. And and beauty was a tool that she used. Now, fast forward, I graduated high school at 15 and I moved to America by myself at 16. So imagine being in that mind space. Tell us that you're brilliant without telling us that <laughs> you're brilliant. <laughs> I, I give myself my own flowers. I'll tell you that. We worked hard. But I moved here by myself. And imagine coming from a space where women are being prioritized. You have mom who has a beauty salon. Beauty is is really ingrained in your DNA. And I my point of entry into this country was Texas. From Texas, I spent a month and I got into college at the University of Oklahoma at 16. And I moved to Oklahoma within a month of moving here. So it was like, a, it was a culture shock. 
it wasn't culture shock. The the means of me finding rest and self-care wasn't attainable anymore. I didn't have, I couldn't find a hair braider for my first two years there. I was in college. I'm like dealing no problems. With, you like know, no problems. Or I remember when I found out I had to go to somebody's house. I've, I've been to someone's house and there was a crackhead. I don't know if I can say that. <laughs> right I mean, you got to call whatever it is, what it is. You know? I'm outside the house and I'm thinking like, I'm literally risking my life because I want to get my hair done. How crazy is that? That I have to go through these extreme circumstances just to get what for me was a basic um, form of self-care. And immediately I told myself, I'm, I'm, I'm 16. So at this point, I'm like, I'm going to be the MLK of beauty. I'm going to solve this problem for the women in Oklahoma, the black women in Oklahoma. As soon as I got my work permit, I was 18. The government issued my work permit. And I drove myself to Dillard's department store and asked for a job in the beauty department. And I was happy they gave it to me because I don't like folding clothes. They gave it to me and I became a perfumer. I immediately, you know, my love for customers really grew there. And while I was working there, another Black woman at Longcomb noticed me. She already had two other black women on her team. So there were three black women on that team in Oklahoma. I just want you to get the full picture. So when she what noticed What percentage me, of the black population in Oklahoma was that? <laughs> it's like she was collecting all she was collecting all of them. She was like, <laughs> she was, I was like, and management had a problem with how that many black women on her counter, but we were all as you know, more inefficient. So she said, Hey, I have a spot open. Do you want it? And naturally I said, yes. And she fought a tooth and nail and got me on that team. And that was where the world of luxury beauty really opened up for me. And I started learning. I started working from there. That was how I went through college with that job. That probably was, on on skin that was probably my most long, longest tenure at any job. And then I moved to Dior, where I started working as a business manager for Dior. So at this moment, I've graduated college. I've, this is my first, my first and only job. This industry is an industry that I've really circumvented myself in. And the light, the spark that really threw, threw the spark that lit everything. I was traveling one day on the plane. I was going through TSA. I had my tub of buddy butter mixture. I was a business manager, so my job was to go around teaching the girls at the counter, helping them. You know, my I I loved making sure that they were inclusive in their language and the way they they could treat every customer the same. We don't have to wait for one girl at the counter for you for you to get your fair treatment. I'm at, I'm traveling to TSA and the guy throws away my tub of buddy butter mixture. He throws it away because he doesn't understand that the ounces were permeable at that point. And I'm sitting on the plane thinking, I'm about to go to a Dior boutique. I'm going to be staying at a French star hotel, five-star hotel, sorry, a five-star French hotel. And there's nothing there that I'm going to find that I can use on my body. If I try to go to a store nearby, the chances are I might waste my time before I find what is as good as what I was I, I had conc- I had mixed for myself. And that was when I was like, this can't be it. This can't be it. This inconvenience has to stop. And I went back to the drawing board and I said, I'm going to start my own. I've always had the idea. I've always had the inspiration, but I was very comfortable with Dior. But when that, I'm a woman who doesn't like to be inconvenienced. When I sat down and thought about, I'm either going to have to find time out 
to go look for what I need. I can't use what they have at the hotel because we all know that lotion is not real lotion. And I'm going to a, a, a luxury boutique that I've been working for for over a decade and I still don't, I'm still dealing with this. We have to change that. And that's our point of differentiation with Skim Muse. They're beautiful brands everywhere. They're beautiful, beautiful, beautiful black, black owned beauty brands. Our specialty niche is to carve out rep- authentic representation from the formulation down to the experience for what the modern black woman deserves. You know, we spend twice as much as others for beauty. 84% of us actually help our family members discover beauty products. We are the strongest demographic when it comes to money in the beauty industry, but we keep just having to patch things to make it work. So for us, we are focused on making sure that as the industry is changing, we are also doing our part to change what luxury beauty is doing. And that's our our point of differentiation. That's a great story. And I I appreciated the part in the beginning when you talked about your mom and how she scheduled rest. And I always say that rest is a productivity hack. It's necessary. And I always get super annoyed with the people who want to attack rest and sleep. I'm like, what does sleep do to you? (laughs) What's, What's the problem? I don't understand. I enjoy rest. And when I am rested, then I am better for it. So I like that she scheduled that in and made sure that rest was something that was important. And I think that is serving you now on your entrepreneurship journey so that you don't run towards burnout because you understand the importance of rest. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, you have a goal, a goal of helping women to use beauty as a means of financial empowerment. Tell me about that goal. So I love this question. You know how the first two billionaires, female, black female billionaires in America were from the beauty industry, you know? I grew up with my, and my mom, when I saw her, she used to work in aviation, but at the time when she started her beauty salon, they weren't paying her enough. So she opened up a beauty salon. My grandmother was a holistic healer who would make concoctions for skincare issues like psoriasis or eczema. I, my auntie Bola would braid my hair and eventually opened her own braiding bar. I saw all of them use these forms of these skills and these gifts that they have, not only bless others, but use it as a way to create legacies and financial gain for themselves and their families. And when we talk about beauty in the westernized world, we only talk about it as a vanity metric, you know, like, oh, the trends now, or this is cool, how to twist your hair. But we don't really focus on for a community that is very vested in beauty and is very much using beauty as a cultural tool. The average Black girl is very much familiar with a hair routine. Mommy does it on Sundays or, you know, or mommy's going to have to comb out my hair or, 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 or do something. It's, it's, there's a beauty routine that we're already b- brought up with, right? But we don't show that this means of culture is also a way that you can create financial wealth. You can create financial empowerment. You can be economically set up through it. And that's what I'm trying to make people realize is that, Yes, it's beautiful. Yes, we all look like looking beautiful. Yes, our curls and coils are our are, are crown. But 
we don't have the power in what's being produced in the mainstream. We don't have the power financially to direct with the way the trends are going. The people whose pockets are being filled from our culture when it comes to beauty do not look like us. And when we think about it that way, you start being more intentional in the industry. You start being more intentional in your consumption. You start being more intentional in your what you produce if you are a brand owner. And that's what I'm really trying to make people realize is that this is not just a means for us to beautify ourselves, but this is also a means for you to financially get like liberation. You know, I don't want to sound too too deep, but that's how I look at it. <laughs> yes. Hey. <laughs> that's how you feel. That's how you feel. I'm speaking with Ezene Rania, CEO of Skin Muse, about her fundraising journey and advice for Black women in the beauty industry. So the next question I'm going to ask you, I think a lot of women might want to take notes. I don't know if you what you know you have to share about how you got your products featured and mentioned by all of these celebrities. Mm. When you have a brand, a lot of people who are in the beauty industry, if a celebrity calls out their brand or say they use it, you know, that's a major sort of marketing tool that they pick up on and they use, you know, my -hmm. product was mentioned on Oprah's, you know, five things or Christmas list or something like that. Because if those celebrities give it the seal of approval, if Beyonce is using your product, then everybody wants to be like Beyonce. They're like, okay, if she's using Skin Muse, then okay, I need to get Skin Muse because I want that Beyonce look. So how did you go, what was your marketing PR strategy for getting your products featured or mentioned by these celebrities and featured in these top beauty magazines? When we first started, I know when, when the Beyonce feature happened, we were like six months old. So we weren't, we weren't that old. We were literally babies, infants. And I remember when it came out, we didn't know. We found out when everybody else, my phone was blowing up. Our, as you can imagine, our our online store was blowing up. That money that we made from that one mention took our business through for a year and a half. That's that's the power of Beyonce. <laughs> we were listen, we, folks. You heard that a year and a half just from yeah. Beyonce, just from flattering okay. on some skin muse. Just from that Beyonce and she, putting us on Black Parade, just just that on, on being on that Black Parade route ha- gave us enough capital as a new business who was barely six months old during the pandemic. It took us, it took us, a, it, it carried us through for, it, that was the capital that got injected in our comp- in our business. What I believe, at that point, I didn't know how she had noticed us, but now, you know, you get to know and you, you inquire, our branding got us on Zarina Acres' radar. And Zarina made sure that we went we 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 were one of the brands featured by her. So tell the listeners who Zarina is. Zarina Acres is not only she's the owner of Black Owned, founder of Black Owned Everything. The woman is an amazing stylist. She's a creative produ- producer. She works on many accounts and many clients. I mean, from Shea Moisture to Beyonce, she's the curator for the Black Parade Route, who has helped a lot of Black, which has helped a lot of Black businesses. And she's just somebody that, honestly, if you don't know, you need to Google. <laughs> okay? Okay. <laughs> That's why I wanted to make sure you let the people listening know okay. so they could go and do their research. You need, Google her. you need to Google her. She's very much a pillar that someone who advocates for Black-owned everything. Like I said, Black-owned everything, Black businesses. What, 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 what I, how did you get on her radar? Our branding, and that's one of we have. Tell me, tell, tell me how that happened. 
so I remember when we first started this business and a lot of people, I see a lot of mistakes happen when you start beauty companies, you just kind of jump in. It's like, oh, we have, a, we have a great company. It's beauty. Like, no, we did research. We studied our audience. I mean, we had folk, we gave out probably a hundred samples and did many focus groups in our community. I knew who, so that we were sure because black people are not monolithic. Just because you're making a product for a black person doesn't mean that every black person is going to like it. They're, we're not all the same. What you like, Michelle, I might not like. Well, you know, and vice versa. So we really did an intense research to figure out which black woman are we here for? How can we communicate with her the best? How can we make sure that she sees us and immediately knows that we are for her? How can we be also inclusive of black trans women? And how can we authentically show up without feeling like we're sabotaging our cause? And through that research, we came out with our branding. I have an amazing CCO. He's has he can he comes with a well of experience. That's another thing. Hire people who are better than you in that role. If if you can do what they can do, they don't hire them, especially for a, a new company. Hire people who are absolutely even if I had the same degree and I would need years of experience to do what every one of my team does. Hired him gave him that research, gave him those, this is what, this is what people are saying. This is what they want. This is what they're missing. And he went to work with that branding. Our branding tells you a story. Our branding gives you, exudes premiumness. Our branding exudes authentic representation. Our branding exudes self-care rituals. And, and we do it in a way that you know that we're getting these stories from the community. So perfecting our branding made it easy for Zarina to find us because when I'm doing a product for you, it's going to make my it's going to make its way to you eventually. If more women are talking about it, more people are picking it up, and that's actually how we even got an L. All these features that you just talked about, we only just hired our first PR team earlier this year. Until then, they were just off of amazing branding. We were DMing companies because we had no shame. What's what's the worst? You tell me no. I DM people, hey, this is my company. I would love to try it out. Check it out. Let's see who picks up on it. But having that authentic and very much, I remember when we first started, people were like, oh my gosh, we, the ethnic aisle is full or oh my gosh, just black women. I'm like, just give me a second. We did the research. So we felt confident of our goal and we kept confident that this is the way the company should look and, and, and speak to people. And that got, I, I ultimately, that was how Zarina noticed us. Yes. So the major takeaway, make sure that your branding's popping. Popping. And it doesn't have and to be hire black people food. who know how to help you make that happen. Yes, yes. It doesn't doesn't have to be luck. It can be whatever, but make sure that you have done the research to ha- to back the data so that you don't waste your time talking to everybody, but the people who you have made this comp- this brand for. So please be intentional with your branding. It saves you so much time, money, and effort. Yes. Mm-hmm. Thank you for that. And I hope that the listeners are taking, you know, notes. If you're a budding beauty mogul, these are the types of insights that could take you far so that you don't spin your wheels and waste time. Mm -hmm. Now, the name of the show is called Where's the Funding? So, of course, we're going to talk about money. So, you have won some significant grant funding. So, Mm -hmm. what advice can you share about your fundraising journey with grants? 
and how to write a compelling grant that someone wants to fund. So part of my background is in grant making. I've done that for a number of years. So I have some insights into this, but I want to hear your insights. So, and it also starts from the research because there are lots of grants out there, but they're not going to come to you. You have to do your research. So that's number one. Let me not get into my soapbox and let you, you talk about <laughs> your journey, what you did that other people who are listening to this that might be on their journey and they're thinking about grants at the early stage of their business, right? What should they know? What should they do? I love that you ask this question because in this journey, I think people are not comfortable enough talking about money. There's like a hush-hush culture about it and we need to talk about the money. When I first started, I actually, from my personal personal account, I've only put $300 into this business and now we've bootstrapped for a six-figure business. We just received our first investment and people were, I was like, I remember someone was like, how are you going to do it? Like, you want to do this with this? It don't make sense. I... I remember I put an application into this accelerator called Grid 110. It They work with the mayor of LA's office, right? And immediately I, I got accepted, which I thought was wild. I was like, oh my gosh, they accepted me. And I was like, what? there were a thousand applications that went in. They only picked like 10 companies or so. And, and, I, and I got in. While I was there- What was the heck great. did you put into your application that made you stand what out you among a thousand applicants to be one of the 10 selected? Because this is I, what people need to know. How are no. you positioning yourself to be seen and to be chosen? Then I don't think, I, I, I'll tell you the answer I give now. Then I, I feel like it was the glory of the Lord and vision. They saw the vision in my heart and I'm going to- And that can still be true, but you have to do something. You have to do the work. I had a very clear market strategy. Um, when people do grants, I think we like to fluff it up. I think we were to romanticize our answers. We're, we're giving, oh, we do so much social impact. But the thing about it, you have to think about grants as investors. Yes, it's free money, but your success helps their program continue going because they have to tell people where this money is going, Right. They have to be accountable for the money that they're giving out for their company to continue having this money to dispense. The program they're running has to be successful. And you are the one who's going to ensure that it stays successful. So you have to have a clear market strategy. Don't come saying, telling them you're going to use $20,000 for a million things. They know that is not possible. Don't come telling them that this 5K is going to birth a new generation of sunscreen. They know that is impossible to do. They know. So I have, I've always had a very clear market strategy. This is what, this is our go-to market strategy. This is where we're going to hit. This is what we're going to do. When they ask you questions like, okay, how do you plan on dispersing the funds? I'm very straightforward. I actually go, I actually break it down. If you tell me, if you're giving me 20,000, I, I tell you 5,000 is going towards rent. 2,000 is going towards marketing. 3,000 will go towards paying this person's salary. 10,000 will go. I break it down. So you know that I've thought about it. I'm not about to be waiting for the money to come to me before I know what to do with it. I already know what's No, that's what you call a budget narrative. And a lot of grant makers, they want that upfront. They want to see line by line item, how you're going to use every bit of that money. So I was the person on the other side, listening to some of this fluff and just rolling my eyes. (laughs) You know, it's, 
be transparent. Like, you know, you can give, you can, you can be, I guess you can be poetic you, when they say your mission and stuff. But when it comes to these numbers, in fact, have your numbers and you don't have to have life-changing numbers. There's this facade that you have to have a million in the bank for someone to notice you. They just want to know that you have a clear understanding of what you're asking for and you will know how to use it. So And a clear pathway to profit to start exactly. generating some revenues. Boom. Lean into your niche. I'll, I see a lot of times people make mistakes of throwing applications into whatever grant is happening. You're wasting your time. Don't, it's like a, think of it like a job application. If my skill set is in beauty, why am I applying to a job in, in, in engineering? I don't, they're not going to give me that grant. This is a grant for people who are for engineers. So I apply to grants that are in my niche. I, I don't just take anyone's money, but I like to look at the team is, okay, after the money is what else can happen from this connection? What else can I get from this grant application? It, who are they connected with? We applied for a grant last year, this year for 10,000, but they were working with the lab. Because they were working with the lab, we got 60,000 in services. We got to have our products clinically tested. We got the money plus having a formulator on our uh, to work with us for a couple of months for free. So think about what you're, where you're throwing your application to. Don't just throw it at a wall. Be like, be very, very much intentional. Look through the directory. Who is writing checks in my category? Who is writing checks to people that look like me? Also, I like to look at past recipients. How far have they gone since they applied for the grant? How has the grant helped them pivot to the next level? And then I put my application in. Last tools I like to say, please save your answers. When you're writing a grant, make sure you have another like document somewhere where you're saving your answers. What happens is you start to see a pattern when you start winning. Okay, these questions are working for me. These answers are working for me. So that way, and it even helps you be faster. Sometimes you can copy and paste and just, you know, edit a little bit. So Because you're like, this worked last time. So let's just edit, fluff it up and repackage it. Yeah. Exactly. Save those answers. Anytime you win it, go back and look at that one application that helps you win. Okay, I'm seeing the difference between this one and that one, and then build on that. So those are the tools. And and don't apply. I know it's it's a job application, so have structure. I do my grant applications on Fridays. Period. I don't do it. I don't let it interfere with my company. I have two hours I carve out the a, a week for it, and I just go at it, and that's it. So I would say that. Mm-hmm. Thank you for those great tips and pieces of advice. And one of the pieces of advice I usually give to people is also pay attention, right? Like like you said, don't go wasting your time and the people's time by applying for something that you're never going to get because it's outside of scope mm-hmm. for what they fund or it's mm-hmm. not in your sector. They're not going to make an exception just for you because you're so awesome. It just no. doesn't work like that. So just save your, save your energy. Yes. yes. No. Tell me about your recent selection into the Andreessen Horowitz Talent and Opportunity Cohort. Tell me about that. You know, that's one of our biggest wins this year. If people don't know who Andreessen Horowitz um, is, they are the third biggest investor in the world. And they 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 write big big checks and big checks. Talent, big checks. <laughs> to have that be our first investor is wild. When people hear that, they're like, "What?" <laughs> that is, we weren't even in a process of fundraising, but we were entertaining conversations. 
when the opportunity came, it came earlier in May. I was it June, June. Yes, it came in June. I didn't even know I was talking to Anderson Horowitz when it, when it came. Um, we were talking to Kofi, who runs the talent opportunity cohort and the fund. And I remember just negotiating and asking them, so like, what else are you bringing to the table far from money? Like, what what else do you have? You know, just I was interviewing them, which I'm glad I didn't know it was them because I probably would have just been too excited to interview them. We They're doing their diligence. I'm doing my own due diligence. Um, it's a program. They invest in you, but they also work with you for about six months. So yes, they're going to give you money, but they're going to make sure that your company succeeds because your success is dependent on their success. Um, sorry, their success is dependent on your success. This I got fund, you. Exactly. What I love about this particular fund, now Andreessen Horowitz has multiple funds. Like the fund that I'm part of is not the same fund that Adam Newman is getting his money from. If you don't know Adam Newman, I don't think we have enough time. Just Google it. We don't have time to talk about him. We're not talking about it. So this particular fund, why one of the reasons why I said yes was because our equity that they eventually will get goes back to a black or brown founder, black or brown company. It's it's a very intentional fund where you are investing back in the community and not an Anderson Horowitz doesn't get to keep the money, actually. They're obligated to give it to a black or brown company. And that's what I love. They're obligated to use it in the fund to continue funding other companies that look like ours. Um, one thing I love about this is that I've never been, I've been in spaces where I can show up myself. I, I feel like after working for myself for this long, you cannot dilute me. I'm showing up like this all the time. But when I was looking at VCs, I was a little nervous that I would not be able to show up as myself. And I remember asking them like, am I going to be able to, I don't want to come in here and you guys try to start changing things up. Mm-mm. Is let me know now so I can leave this spot for somebody else. That's not what it is. And I've been able, we've been working for a month and a half now together. Every meeting has brought me joy. They're very intentional. They're very helpful. They have people who look like me that are leading this fund. They are, they listen. When they say they listen, you can bring some stuff to them and complain and they will listen to you. They have resources. They have access. Apart from the money, the access is something I can't deny. You know, being on the same fund as the Ubers and the Pinterest and, and things like that, is, it gives you access. And, a, and access is what a lot of people in our community are lacking sometimes. That's the difference between going from point A to point B sometimes. It's access. So they give you that as well. They're very open with it. They take recommendations too. I love, I can ask them anything like, hey, what do you think about this company? And they're, they're willing to hear you out. So it's a very level playing field. I remember... Wanted to make sure I was like, I don't want this to feel like charity. I don't want to feel like charity for nobody because this is not charity. I work hard and I've never felt that way at all. So to have that be our first experience with an investor in this space, I think is a blessing that I don't ever take for granted. Yes. I love it. As we get ready to wrap up, what advice would you give for other beauty entrepreneurs about how to try and get into this Get into this because this sounds like an amazing opportunity. And you talked about the wraparound support and the access. Access is so important. Sometimes access can be more than the initial money you get because it opens a door to even more money and more growth and mm-hmm. more opportunities. And so sometimes don't just look at the initial amount, look at the support and the access that you get from participating in these types of programs. So what advice would you give really quickly for someone else about how you you structured yourself to be able to 
get selected for this cohort? I say, I like to always say this, stand in your truth and the world will make room for you. I Can I we think- get two snaps for that? <laughs> okay. Stand in your truth and the world will make room for you. I say that a lot. We've been programmed to think that our truth is not enough. We've been programmed to be in a society that wants us to edify ourselves in order to fit into certain spaces. And what has worked for me has been to be authentically me. I, I believe people respect that about me. I people who are curious about why I've chosen to, to leave my, live my life this way. So standing in your truth and the world will make room for you. That's in general. Most the technical advice I would like to say, the technical, because people, I like to give technical advice. One, if you're trying to start a business, please open a business account. It doesn't have to be a legit business account. Just open a separate account. Do not- No commingling of funds, folks. Okay. Don't don't commingle that. Open a separate account. I, don't, I can't tell you how much my accountant was so happy when we brought her on board that I had done that. She was like, oh my gosh, first of all, save this money. Because she didn't have to go through combing through books or anything like that. It saved us so much money and time. Open a separate account. Do not skim on legal arrangements. If you want to have a scalable business where years from now it's sturdy and you can take an investment, I know it sounds crazy, but please don't Google a template and use it for your bylaws. Please make that investment. It's so intentionally. Please have a a proper CPA that can make sure the IRS doesn't come after you make these sacrifices as early as possible because they will set you up better for the long term. Lastly, be comfortable with finances. Don't quit your job if you cannot afford to. A lot of people quit their jobs thinking, I mean, yes, the grace of God is is in all of us, but I was able to not make decisions out of desperation the first year because I had a job that was paying for my livelihood. That job allowed me have the money to do might do what I needed to do while this company was able to grow. I wasn't desperate for funds. I, I wasn't desperate for where rent was going to come from. I was comfortable to make sound-minded decisions. So know that, yes, that first year is going to be hard. You're going to be working maybe 80 hours a week. I'm not going to lie. It's hard. It's hard work to build a legacy. But don't quit if you can't afford it because what's going to happen is you're going to be so hungry that you're going to take any opportunity. So take your time, ease out, have a plan before you exit out of that full-time job, have a sturdy plan and have a safety net. Um, I had a family. I'm not going to, I tell people all the time, I come from a very well-to-do, we're not like Bill Gates, but enough where I know I can run home if everything crashed. And so does my partner. He has a family that we could have gone to if everything crashed with this risk. So have a safety net. It doesn't have to be family. It could be a friend. Hey girl, I'm doing this. If, if I'm about to leave my job, God forbid it doesn't work, can I come crash at your house for two months? And that way you can make that leap knowing that you won't be homeless. I'll leave you there. Mm-hmm. I love it. Ezene, thank you so much. I feel like we could have just a whole other session. You might have to come back and talk about I, other I things. Come, I like this. I love to talk about family. I'm like, yes. <laughs> yes. No, we might have to talk about, you know, getting into that business structure, that legal, that making sure your books and all of that stuff because that that stuff is really important and i feel like we need a whole show to talk about but that but thank you so much for stopping by the wtf podcast and to the listeners if you like this episode if you got value from it let us know by writing a review and share it with other people who need to hear what esne had to say because it's selfish to keep good content to yourself so make sure you share 
yes. new episodes stream on Fridays on the Alive Podcast Network. So make sure that you're subscribed either there or on your favorite podcast streaming platform. And make sure that you follow the podcast on Instagram at Where's the Funding underscore podcast and follow it on its LinkedIn page at Where's the Funding Podcast and follow me, your host on LinkedIn, Michelle J. McKenzie. See you next Friday for another episode.